Let me pray. We'll start. Father, thank you for the time that we have this morning just to look to your word and just be reminded of its power to continue to just remind ourselves that your word is more powerful than a two-edged sword, Lord, that it does cut to the human heart and that it is powerful and goes out and will not return void, will not return empty. And we have that conviction as we study that even if we don't see it initially, there is something in the text that we are to strive to see that impacts the way that we live. For you have written it, and you've written it for our good. We just ask this in your son's name. Amen. All right, so we're looking, continuing in on observation and the steps of observation of, we talked with how to find the largest literary unit, talking central theme, and then we've moved into the next literary theme today, uh, breaking it down from the largest thing, uh, from the, the biggest view of the forest, to looking at paragraphs. My encouragement to you is to always start with the largest and then move in, because if you start with the smallest literary unit, it's, you just get confused and it's hard. It's just easier to work big to small um, and really get the context for what's going on. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about those things today. So, find the central theme, break down the paragraphs. We want to read the text and see where the ideas shift. So, hopefully, this is not going to be as boring as an English class, um, an English composition class in high school. But these are important things because this is back to how language works. So, we haven't talked a lot of grammar. Um, I don't think we have to do too much grammar, but we have to do a little grammar. Um, and some of it you know intuitively, even if you couldn't give me the word or give me the case in English of what you, you understand what it's doing just by its context and the way that we, we speak. And so I want to give some helpful thoughts on how to break out a text. Now, if you, did anyone diagram here in school? Okay. What you say? Like, uh, yeah, like a line, so li- line, I don't have any photos, we're not going to talk about line diagramming, but some people, uh, there's a certain area that did a lot of line diagramming with subject verb or subject predicate. Um, they, sometimes they'll move to what they call block diagramming, which is kind of probably what's more taught, I'd say, for most seminaries and Bible teaching. And this is closer to block diagramming in that we're not necessarily identifying every part of speech per se, but we are trying to get um, and identify the shift in ideas. So that's what I think is most helpful, especially if your English is a little bit rusty. As you look at a, some type of literature or book of the Bible, say the book of Colossians, and you're trying to say, where are the breaks? Try to follow the ideas. Now, that's going to help the more grammar you know. And if you go, oh, this is a transition word, or this is a therefore, or this is a, um, a conjunctive that very much starts a new idea, and you go, oh, that's a new thought, and that's how I like to think of paragraphs. This becomes important for Bible study because when we would start a new paragraph in writing, if I was to write you a letter or I was to type it up, we would probably, especially if you're on a computer, you're going to press tab, and you're going to indent. And that's going to let you know, I've started a new paragraph, a new thought. 
Now that thought is still going to be connected to whatever the subject of the paper is. And so it's not going to violate the central theme. It's still going to be about the same subject, but it's going to start a new thought on the subject. So you could see it in English, but the Bible doesn't do that. So it becomes important for us. Um, I think I threw this up last week, but if you want a technical definition of a paragraph, um, a subdivision of a written composition that consists of one or more sentences, deals with one point or gives the words of one speaker and begins on a new, usually indented light, and that's English. Uh, this is helpful, just looking at a basic definition, uh, Merriam-Webster, because it's back to it's dealing with one point. Uh, the Bible is good writing. There's such a thing as bad writing. And some of us are bad writers, myself included at times, where we violate it, but it should be unified. And you've, if you've read bad writing before, you know one of the hard things about reading something that's not written well is you're all over the place and you get lost. And good writing is dealing with one thing and logically moving to a next thing and a next and a next. Um, the scriptures are written well and it's moving um, from one thought to the next thought. There are challenges, which we'll talk about later, uh, maybe more next week with genre, which basically is just talking, uh, it's a fancy word for styles. And so there's rock music, there's country music, and there's different styles of writing. And so um, this idea of moving thought to thought in, say, poetry is a little bit different in the narrative, which is a little different than in epistles. But back to dealing with your Bible and understanding that in Greek, the way the text has came to us, does not have indentation. This is just things you need to be aware of to help you approach the text in a way that you, you I think, uh, understand what is inspired and what is not. So these are some general tips on identifying paragraphs um, as you look to the text. Um, number one, I would say, ignore the chapter divisions. This can be hard. You can find Bibles that will actually take them out. But chapter divisions are very helpful, and they were created for a reason, which is so that I can tell you to go to Colossians chapter 1 and you know how to get to Colossians and then chapter 1. And if I want to go to a specific verse like Colossians 1.17, you can go to 17. But all of those are not original. Those are all man-made. Now, you can trust the fact that your Greek editors are, are very good at what they do, but also when they put a period, there is, there's no punctuation in Greek. So you, they are sometimes making those issues. So just be aware of that. Um, and I think in English, the best way to approach that is sometimes it can be misleading where that chapter division is. Um, and it's not necessarily always accurate. And so you just need to be aware of that. And we're going to look at a couple illustrations of that. All right. First, though, let's talk Colossians. Did anyone do Colossians and try to break out what you thought were paragraphs? And I probably should have given this assignment next week because you were a little ill-equipped maybe. Do you know what I think, or not guess at, but, you know, state what the, the first break would be? I didn't know if you'd count the greeting as... So, yes, I would count the greeting. That's a little... Um, that's one where I think people keep reading. It's like, oh, actually, probably verse 2. Verse 2 and 3, there's, okay, you greeted, and then um, looking at Colossians, then, okay, now he shifts verse 3 to we give thanks. Um, which is kind of different than 1 and 2. And you can feel that shift, but it's not as, um, there's not necessarily a big textual marker other than you would know, oh, he's greeting them, saying hi, 
and then moving to the body of the text. Um, the way we would write would be, you might title it an introduction. And sometimes that's, that's written that way. It's a little, not always like that in Greek, because sometimes it'll launch. Um, so starting in verse 3, what would you say the next break is of the thought? Okay. Why would you say 9? What would you say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> And it's a good illustration of the shift being subtle, um, which is, and that's often how the text is. There's lots of therefores, and you're asking, what is it therefore? Um, but he seems to be progressing. Um, the sports analogy is moving the football down the field, right? He's progressing the argument, and he's saying, we give thanks to God our Father, going through, he's informed us, uh, verse 8, um, of your love and the Spirit. And then he seems to shift. It's not unrelated right? But he does seem to shift to go, and that's why I'm saying this is why I'm saying this. How about the next break? Right, which we're going to eventually get not just chapter headings, but Ignore. Sometimes they're helpful. If I am preaching and for some reason my mind is blank because I'm in front of people, I like to look down sometimes and, oh, yeah, I could just kind of summarize because that's what it says. Um, they can be helpful, but understand they're uninspired. And in this case, it's not helpful. Um, in fact, it's a little deceptive. I'd say very similar to Philippians chapter 2 in that you're tempted to disconnect his argument about Christ from the larger argument. Mine is the firstborn of all creation. My Bible does it too. But if you go verse 13, he starts talking, who rescued us from the authority of darkness? And then verse 15, who is the image? Uh, verse 18, who is the beginning? And you go, oh, that all goes together. And so you're tempted because if we give too much, we pay too close attention to those things, you're going to miss the fact that, oh, 13, 14, and 15, 16, like that's all still the same thought, the same argument. Um, I would make the break at 23, uh, 24, the now, and you're going to start seeing that as well when we get to kind of tips in the way that this is helped. But you'll, you'll see these kinds of um, typical ways the text is broken up where he says, now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake shifting that argument away from all that, the, the, the for this reason kind of completes. Um, and then his moving to, now I'm saying these things. And then another good example of ignoring the chapter divisions is, I don't know if anyone went far enough, when would you say, if you take the break at 24, being the start of a new argument or new thought, did anyone take that all the way into chapter 2?
Did anyone make a break at 28, 29? Which and this is when you deal with some subjectivity, um, because I think you could probably make. I, it's not. Some breaks are major breaks, and some ma breaks are, you're not, you know, are minor. That would probably be something that's very minor, but you could do it. Um, and then I would take that down to two verse five if that's where you made the break, or you could take twenty three, because in that sense, the thought of twenty three, which is, or twenty four, rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, he's still on that. That's because I. Re my sufferings, that's the purpose I also labor. Um, two, one, for I want you to understand how great a struggle. He's still back to 20, that, that same topic of his sufferings in 24. Um, so it's a good example of you're tempted to go chapter 2. It has a new title, a new chapter, and you're thinking it's a completely new thought, and it's not. And that way it's, it's misleading. Um, let's go to Hebrews chapter 5. Do a few of these just to. In every book I've ever preached, I find these just to FYI. Not always major. I'm not saying it's going to change your theology, but if you're trying to follow the argument, um, you will. And if you just, I think the, the more you can ignore them and the more you can start breaking the arguments, the easier then it's going to be able to point back to what is this about? What is God saying? And you're going to see things um, in the way that they're connected, and you're supposed to see them that way. Um, and it's just our human nature to disconnect it, and we want to do best to, to avoid that. But if, uh, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, um, it's a good one here. We're talking here about um, this issue of concerning him, well, back up a little bit, dealing with Melchizedek, um, being designated, verse 10, of Jesus is talking about in Hebrews 5. By God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then what's interesting is there's a break, break here in that you, you feel like there's a shift, but again, it's not a hard shift to verse 11, which some of us have maybe memorized this section, but we've memorized it Awana style independent, um, which verse 11 goes, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So concerning who? Concerning Melchizedek. It says, um, there have much to say about him, but it's hard to tell you guys because you're dull of hearing. Either you don't know your Bible or he's after something, right? He's after some aspect of what does dull of hearing mean. Um, it's seemingly a broad net of immaturity. And so he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern both good and evil. Chapter break. Okay. Flip over. And I thought we were talking about Melchizedek, right? And then you go all the way down to verse 20 of chapter 6, where a forerunner has entered for us Jesus, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 6, 
is not helpful because chapter breaks tend to signify a significant break to you in the text. He hasn't left Melchizedek. In fact, he really hasn't stopped his little interruption of immaturity where he interrupts and says, concerning this, I'd like to tell you more, but I can't tell you more about Melchizedek because you're too immature to hear it. So he's basically going to scold them. And then in chapter 6, he's going to go in warning them about falling away in these elementary principles. You've tasted that the word is good, verse 5 of chapter 6, and the powers of the age to come. Having fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again. All of this context is about preparing them, saying these are the kind, this is who you are. This is who you need to be to understand Melchizedek. And then he's going to roll back into 620, and he's going to say, okay, now having said that, let me talk about Melchizedek. And then chapter 7 is all about Melchizedek. Um, it's just another good illustration to say that chapter 6 really does not belong there. And if you make this hard shift, you're not going to connect the argument of maturity to their understanding of Melchizedek and why they can't hear because they're immature and can only take milk when they should be, especially understanding a fairly Jewish audience. So like you, you have these promises, which he goes into. You should be more mature than that. Um, so 5.11 talks maturity. 6.20 talks maturity. And we want to see those connected. And trust me, especially once you are committed, which this is good. And so we, I love the phrase verse by verse, right? Verse by verse exposition. But the only issue with that is sometimes you make the smaller breaks and you missed out that, oh, 5.11 was maturity and 6.20 was maturity because you got so deep into the weeds. And so, again, breaking it from the largest unit of what is the main subject, the central theme, and then trying to break down paragraphs helps guard you to realize, okay, I'm in a bigger section here as I then interact with what does the smaller section, which is going to be a sentence, what is it communicating? Uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. This will lend us multiple good examples. Uh, if you look at verse 16, and... This is also, I think, helpful to try to identify what feels in certain places with Paul where all of a sudden he interrupts. And, well, if he's interrupting, it's important. Um, and it's not really an interruption, but you have to kind of see maybe, I don't see how this relates to this on the surface. Um, he just breaks into a doxology. He just breaks into, in this case, prayer. Um, this reason, verse 15, too, I have heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. And I don't know, do most people have a colon at that point? Punctuation. And they're trying to communicate that there, there's, there's an excursus to that. This isn't really the prayer, right? And so it's a bit of an excursus that goes on then in 17, where he's saying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the full knowledge of him, so that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of his calling, that of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us, who believe according to the work of his might and his strength, which he worked in Christ, by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand, 
in the heavenly places, far above rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I love the fact that you have this strong movement in chapter 2 of and, and then, of course, you have but God later. Um, But the temptation by that chapter is to not see the connection that he's not done in 23, right? He's continuing this same, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formally conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. The and, we're, not, we're going to talk about the conjunctions a little bit later, is connecting, in other words, it's not creating a division, it's not creating a new thought. He's continuing the, the argument that he's made from 1, 17, 18, um, into one. The big break is four, where he goes into, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And you don't need to know Greek to know that because you know your English well enough to see, oh, I need to make sure if I was studying this to take one, two, and three. And that goes with the section here of 17 talking about that prayer. Um, It's just helpful that you recognize they aren't always necessarily accurate, and they can be misleading. You see the same thing in the Gospels. I should have pulled up a Mark example. I don't know if I can think of one off the top of my head. Um, but you'll see it in the Gospel and narrative as well, where um, there's influence from the synoptics. And um, they'll make breaks in a way that, because they think these go together, and then it's like, well, but Mark's using these differently. And so you see it in the Gospels quite often as well. Uh, so the natural next thing is... Um, Ignore the verse divisions. And so, understand, go thought by thought, and recognize that there is, in the original Greek, there's no punctuation. Um, again, Greek editors are good. They're, they're making choices. But for the sake of trying to find the argument and breaking down paragraphs, I would say don't always trust the way they do it. Because if you do... You see, because of English, your own eyes, you see every verse feels like break, 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 break. And you almost got to get out of that and see bigger breaks. Does it mention Hebrew also has no punctuation? Correct. Yeah. So. Um, oh, at some point. Yeah, this section, I was going to talk about it. Um, it's it's kind of well known, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, verse 3 through 14 is the longest sentence in Greek um, in the New Testament. And so um, that's a really good example of you would never see that in English because um, you have a period, what, verse 6 is a period. I mean, you see some of the commas. Verse 10 is a period. Verse 12 has a period. Verse, um, actually, funny enough, uh, and then, yeah, verse 14 has a period. So there is, like, commas in English, the way that it's trying to connect these things together. But in Greek, it's one sentence. Um, 
it's just helpful to, like I said, understand. Don't give too much weight to these things. And honestly, when you read, if you're really studying Ephesians 1, one of the things that will be hard about that is you're trying to find, okay, um, where does this end? So, But if you look just at the punctuation, you would think this is, I don't remember what I said, four or five sentences. So go thought by thought, not just by punctuation. I'm glad they're there, but also um, you need to ignore them for this study aspect. And then go back to them being helpful. Teach your kids how to read them, but just recognize they only go so far. Um, and I know when I've given assignments in classes before, especially if you try to say, hey, I want you to, even in seminary for me when I did a, a Bible exposition class where we talked, you know, Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, one of our assignments was to put, which I understand why, and I, I would totally do the same thing. Uh, they want you to kind of internalize it. So one assignment is, as you read through every book, you had to give your own chapter headings. You just couldn't, like, say, you tell me what you think Ephesians chapter 1 is about in your own words. And then tell me what Ephesians 2 is about in your own words. Um, and that's helpful, and that's also the way we look at and if they look up things. When I say Ephesians 3, we think what's in there. So that's, that's fine. Um, but I would say do that and go even a step further. But that step further is probably why you don't get assigned it in even seminary because it would take a very, very long time for you to feel confident. And, oh, not only am I looking at Chapter 2, what's in here, commenting on it, making a new heading, but I'm also trying to think through the, the language breaks and things. But if you're going to preach or teach or really study, that's where I'd say, yes, you, you want to make your own divisions. A lot of times the divisions are right, but just be aware they're, they're man-made. Um, same thing goes, like I said, chapter headings, or sometimes you'll see the headings in the midst of verses. Um, when you're going to go study, ignore them. James chapter 3 is a good illustration of this. All right, who has, what does your heading say in James chapter 3? Anybody? The what? The untamable tongue? tongue? Anyone else have anything different? Taming the tongue. I have the tongue as a fire. Uh, classically, what, what, what do you have? What Bible are you sitting over there with? You're going to ruin the whole illustration. Oh, they knew what they were doing. Uh, so most modern versions say, um, what is it? What, what did you say, Snyder? What? Taming the tongue. Did you, tongue is a fire. Okay, so you have taming the tongue, which is, is it ESV. Okay, so most modern translations have taming the tongue. And so you read James chapter 3, and you're going, all right, this is all about the lesson I need to learn from this is tame the tongue, right? Until you study and you get to verse 7, and it says, For every kind of beasts and birds, of reptiles, creatures of the sea is tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison.
Either way, the illustration is that RD says the untamable tongue, right? And you read a heading where you go, man, I'm teaching this pastor speech to the kids in church. And what's the subject? Man, we got to teach them to tame their tongues. And you read verses 7 and 8, and I think Ardiz is right, which is to say, actually, you're literally teaching the opposite of the text. It's saying you can't tame your tongue. And I think it's a huge point, even in his illustration here, to say, if you try to tame your tongue, you will fail every time because it's untamable. Um, in fact, relative to beasts of the, the field, which is his illustration, birds, reptiles, um, you can tame those things. Your tongue, you can't tame. So you're going to have to do something different. You're going to have to take a different approach with the tongue. Um, and that is where I think you can get into um, our understanding here of this text to go. It's more accurate to say, recognize what you're after, um, and you're going to have to do what you do with untamable animals. And what do you do with untamable animals? You train them, but if it's really untamable, you put them down. That is an option. <laughs> You put them down, or if you go to the zoo, where are your untamable animals? On a leash? They're caged. And so that's, uh, when you go to what is this text teaching, you go, oh, once you understand it's untamable, once you understand what do you do with something untamable, you get far more, I think, a better, uh, the, the textual implication of, oh, we have to take this and put this in a cage and not let it out. Um, and if you have the confidence, like you might come to me and say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I really struggled with my tongue when I was younger, and I, I did all this, and I swore, and I was really angry with people all the time, uh, but now I'm fine. You don't understand James chapter 3. You just, you're never going to get to a place in your life that you go, oh, yeah, I got this thing tamed. No, no, you've you got to put this thing in a cage and not let it out and watch it like a hawk at every moment. Um, oh, uh, Oh, now I'm dropping the magicians. Uh, the, what? No, the one with the, that had the lion attack. Or the tiger. It was a tiger attack. Siegfried, yeah, Siegfried and Freud. You know, and you see all those pictures of them with this, like, tiger that they're loving and petting him and everything. And one day just turned on him. And so you treat your tongue like an untamable animal, not like. So I have a high trust level with my dogs. Um, and so I have no issue leaving my black lab and my golden retriever with my kids at home, right? They can go into the basement with my kids. I'm upstairs doing whatever because I feel like they're tame and I trust them. That's not true of all dogs. That's not true of all animals. And you would do different things. You'd take different measures if you felt like it was untamable. And so this is just a good illustration of saying you can get a heading, a chapter heading, that is teaching the exact opposite of what it's actually saying. It's saying, tame the tongue. <laughs> no, it's untamable. And so go ahead and cage it. There's just certain things you're, you're not going to fix about your tongue in this life. Um, and so you better put it in a cage. That's probably my favorite illustration I've come across so far. All right. Historically speaking, this is helpful. Uh, when were they added? So Stephen Langdon added chapter divisions into the Latin Vulgate in the 12th century. Um, so the 1100s. So 900 years ago, we, we had these added in. Um, 
And so like, I think it's helpful to say, oh, they were added at a point for that most of church history at this point, longer than since they've, churches had no chapter titles, chapter divisions, than the period of time that we've had them. So just understand, you man-made, they put them in there. Uh, tradition would say they were later transferred to the Hebrew Bible, and so that's another issue because those divisions weren't even made in Hebrew or in Greek. They were made in Latin. So a Latin translation, of they translated Hebrew into Latin and Greek into Latin and made divisions in there and then said, those are good divisions, so let's add them in there. Why? So that I can say, go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, and we can all communicate. Um, it would be very hard preaching if we didn't have some mechanism for it. So again, thankful for them, but understand they came late um, and they're not always perfectly accurate. And then verses, 1551, Stephanus added verses, divisions to the Greek New Testament. And then one of the funny parts of that tradition is the story goes that he added them while traveling from Paris to Lyon, France. And how do you travel in 1551? And you'd go, I would hope it's in a carriage, but tradition says he did it on horseback. So if you trust your verses a little bit less now, I don't know. I, that's a lot of work, is all I know, is, is, is getting that all done while traveling um, on horseback. Um, but that's the history of it. And so um, looking where thoughts shift, where making paragraphs, so that's what I would do. Is I'd, I'd read the text, I'd read it again, try to identify the whole thing. So not just start verse by verse. And that, what I mean by that is you're getting, I'm reading, I'm reading, because if you get too bogged down and what does this mean, what does this mean, what does this mean, before you get into the largest literary unit, you're preventing yourself from getting to what is most helpful to answer those questions. So get through the whole book. Get through the whole book again. And then go back and start trying to, if you've identified whether it's an explicit or implicit theme, and then you can test that theme mostly by going back and saying, where are the thought breaks? Where are the paragraph breaks? Um, which is to say, okay, they're dealing with this subject here, this subject here, this subject here, which all relate to the main subject. So what we're trying to do is really, I would say, reverse the order of the way we write. So we write with words and then sentences and then paragraphs and then put paragraphs together and have books or letters. We're reversing that, right? We're, we're going from the largest down to the smallest unit. Uh, the next smallest unit then is, if we're going from this big central theme to paragraphs or thought units, like, I think that's a more practical term, uh, then you are going to sentences. Um, this is where we have a little bit of English. So I apologize. Don't totally tune out. Um, it'll be less than 10 minutes. Um, but if you remember back to English and you remember a sentence, a sentence has at least two components. And the broadest kind of terms are you have a subject and you have a predicate, and that predicate has a verb and a object typically, right? Uh, which could be a noun. <laughs> uh, and so when we're breaking out the sentence, and there's still even a smaller unit still, right? We're breaking into words, but we're looking at a sentence. You're trying to go, okay. Who is doing the action? Who's the subject? And who is getting acted upon is probably the most general way I can say that. This becomes very important as you look to 
say, just to go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Um, so after the greeting, and you get your first paragraph, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so you're going, okay, somebody's blessing and somebody's getting blessed. Does it matter if we identify those correctly? Definitely. Recognizing that it's God's the one who's doing the blessing and we're the ones receiving the blessing. Um, and you do that by understanding this you know, basic English of subject, verb, and then the object of what that action is. So who's doing the action? Who's getting acted upon? With that, using that same verse, there are other important aspects, especially when it comes to interpretation, which we're going to get to later in this class, um, is this idea of modifiers. So back to English class, give me, give me, give me some modifiers. Technical term, if anyone remembers, right? Where's the teachers? Come on, teachers. Yeah, yeah, well, that's what I'm thinking of. So, like, whether adjective, adverb. So, yeah, like an adverb's modifying a verb, an adjective's modifying a, um, a noun, describing it, right? Yeah. Do they use a different word than modifier now? Am I old? What happened? I've never heard modifier, really. Okay. Right, right. Um, so, it, it'd, be a, it'd be a broad category of which you have things like adjectives, for example. So, Colossians, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Um, and you'd see with, and this is a huge one, not flipping to Colossians. Um, we saw that as well. But how many blessings? Some? Right? Every. Every blessing. So it's telling you how much blessing, how many of the blessings do you get in Christ Jesus? You get every single blessing. And I do think, not to go into preach mode, but this is extremely practical and really helpful because now you're seeing, okay, this is every, this is, um, like I said, when you get to Colossians, you start seeing all, every, it's comprehensive, and then you get back to who's the object? Well, it's going to be, who has every blessing? We do. And then you might be tempted to think, and we use this language all the time in English, that you are blessed more because you got a great job. The Lord's really blessed me. Um, man, I got a really good deal. I found a house. The Lord really blessed me. Um, and there's a way in which we talk about blessing comparatively in which you go, you're more blessed than I am. And then you read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and it's, no, like you have been blessed with every blessing. Um, I understand the technical side of like you were just talking with trying to describe how God works individually and physical things. But the most important thing we've been given is spiritual blessing. And I have every spiritual blessing. Um, I may not have as much material, quote, unquote, things. Uh, you know, um, some of them I have them think, oh, I'm, I'm extremely blessed because uh, I'm the pastor of this really large church with this really nice building. I'm really blessed. Um, well, in a very real way, I have every one of those blessings, no matter where I am whether I'm in the middle of nowhere teaching five people or teaching 5,000 people, 
I have every spiritual blessing that comes from God who is above. So that's just kind of helpful um, just to recognize. And that, again, what am I doing? I don't think, I'm not necessarily encouraging you. You could. I'm not encouraging that you have to go and break apart every sentence and diagram every single sentence. I'm just saying, make notes. Try to see, well, how is this modifying this um, by every, all, those kinds of terms, those kinds of adjectives or, or adverbs as you read Scripture. Now, you can get a lot more technical. Um, the beauty of Greek, if you ever do have an interest in Greek, is you have case endings that are very specific, far more specific than English. Um, and so it gets very easy in Greek to identify which part of speech is which because the ending changes depending on um, which way you're using. English is all context-based, which is why every foreigner hates English because it's really hard to figure out. Um, the other one that just uh, I think is worth talking about is prepositional phrases and so describing on the the object side of things telling you a location I guess is the easiest way I can say it without getting into too much Uh, it's telling you where this is happening Um, is it on is it over is it above is it in is it through and so looking at this same text in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 and we are to walk through it. Blessed be the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You'd say, in, would be a prepositional phrase, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you could say, heavenly places, yes, but even more importantly, in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we'd be wholly blameless before him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, uh, which he graciously bestowed of us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace, which he caused to abound to us in all wisdom and insights, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in him. Verse 10, for an administration of the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things on earth in him. Verse 11, in him. We also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will to the end of, to the end that we who first have hoped in Christ would be to the praise of his glory in him. So just stopping there, that would be the, we've already talked repetition, but now I'm just saying start identifying within the sentence group what is being repeated. And this is telling us not just, oh, a phrase is being repeated, be repeated, but it's telling you where all these blessings are located. They're in him, they're in Christ, they're in him, they're in Christ. Um, and I know people who are, this is not me, so don't feel like you need to be this. But you know, I mean, there are people who are going to have a color for prepositional phrases. You know, and their Bible is going to be color-coded. It's not me. I just circle it, circle it, and I kind of just know, yeah, you know, that's, that's being repeated. And it's telling me something in English, which is a location, a location, a location, which is reflecting what the text says. Um, One last one here, Romans chapter 5, verse 15, talking conjunctions. (laughs) Google. That is true. Teach your kids how to read. Oh, that's that's the. 
Conjunction is an easy one. Come on. Out of all the things that are out there. If you don't remember what a gerund is, I'm like, that's fine. I get that. Well, so, uh, you know, funny enough, every seminary that I know of, including where I was at at Masters, the very first thing they teach is English. You don't get credit for it. And it's like a uh, three or four or five day refresher course. But they pretty much have to reteach every single student English because you can't learn another language without a reference language. So you have to refresh, typically. Or some of us all go, I don't know if I was taught that. You know, but. So in that reference, it's scripture and other languages? No, not necessarily. I mean, it's English, right? I'm just saying, like, uh, well, so in, in the seminary concept, they're just teaching you English to, remind, to help you go in a reference point. When I'm trying to teach someone uh, case endings in Greek, they have a reference point. Um, oh, that this is a noun, this is a subjunctive. Like, there, 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 there are English comparisons, and you just have to, if you don't know what it means in English, then you're, you're flying dark. So, just, so. Uh, but uh, Romans chapter 5, verse uh, 15. So you see difference, and, but, different ways that it's joining the sentence together. Um. But the gracious gift, verse 15, is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one of the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the many of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And so we're talking, um, broadly speaking, between Adam and Jesus. And you inherited something for both of them, uh, but they're, they're not exactly the same. Um, so, and, he's saying, verse 16, so again, the conjunction, he's saying, And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, i.e. Adam, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For, by, for if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. And it's just kind of pointing out 16 that this is very important that you have an understanding of the gracious gift, the sacrifice of Christ, gives something it's different than the transgression of Adam. And that he describes that by saying, and the gift is like that which came through. And so part of that is back to that thought and, and just seeing are we joining something together or are we making a distinction? So I'll say that real quick and then we'll um, wrap up here. Uh, just to Summarize, we're moving from the largest literary unit to the next unit, paragraphs to the next sentence, and then to words. Um, we don't really have time to go through this one, um, so we'll save it for, for next time. Um, but each word um, is going to matter. And so, yes, I am saying verse by verse, word by word, line by line, um, but you need to have a concept of the context. Otherwise, the danger of eisegesis, taking something out of context, lurks at every corner. And you can have, which I have, your Second Timothy three sixteen or First uh, Timothy three sixteen award. I have a plaque. Actually, I'll bring it next time, maybe. My Sparky award, and I learned lots of verses to get that plaque, but I don't know what they mean because I don't really know the context. Um, I'm all for kids learning it though because that's part of growing up is you learn things, and you then have to piece it together as you grow up. So teach your kids, memorize scripture. Certain verses are very important to know. 
but also realize that's only one piece to the greater puzzle, which they eventually have to learn how to study the whole thing and put it into context. Questions? Awesome.